Dapper Dan Gavazdin, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It's funny that we introduce ourselves with all these other things, Mark, when the podcast is probably what we're most known for. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks everybody for joining us for the 10th episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Dan, throughout this first season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, you and I have been taking a closer look at the Stan Lee and Steve Ditko creative run on Amazing Spider-Man. Last episode, we talked about co-creator Steve Ditko, uh, but today we're actually going to be casting our spotlight in a different direction uh, other than the co-creators of Spider-Man. Uh, instead, we're going to be looking at all of the series that have taken Spider-Man's origin stories and remixed them to try and recapture that magic that was initially conjured up by Lee and Dicko. Yes, Mark. And for this episode, we're going to be talking about the entire Steve Dicko and Stan Lee run on the book. Although most specifically the first issue, or I guess the 15th issue of Amazing Fantasy, uh, if you will. Um, But we're going to also take a look at uh, the first issue of Spider-Man Chapter 1. That's the John Byrne uh, story. We're also going to take a look at the first story arc of Ultimate Spider-Man. That's issues 1 through 6. And a few other stories in less detail as we get to them. But of course, you can find everything we discuss on the show on Marvel Unlimited or at your local comic book store. So we encourage you to support the creators by reading them there instead of doing some illegal downloading stuff that, you know, just don't do it. Just so I don't go into that rant, uh, let's get <laughs> right into it and talk about Spider Man Origins Remixed. <laughs> So I've been writing Spider-Man since 1999, and originally the job was, it's called Ultimate Spider-Man, and when I was hired, they asked me if we, what we're thinking about doing is reinventing Spider-Man just as if it happened today. Like the original story of Spider-Man took place in the 1960s, and it was like an 11-page story about a kid who gets bit by a spider, and they weren't sure if it was going to sell or not, because spiders are icky, but it did. But all of the information in Spider-Man is based on those first early pages. 
so they said, what if, we, what if it happened today? What if Peter Parker got bit by a spider today? And for many years, that was my job, is to tell that story. What was amazing about writing Spider-Man was that it was kind of like adapting Shakespeare. You don't have to do much to it to apply it to whatever medium you're cho choosing. And my job wasn't that different from the filmmakers that are making the Spider-Man movies. It's just any change we make is almost cosmetic because the truth behind Spider-Man and the revolution of storytelling that was Spider-Man, and I'll tell you what it was in a second, holds today. And the revolution was from Stan Lee, it was the, 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 the flash of genius, was that even if you've got superpowers, your life probably wouldn't be any better, and perhaps it'd probably be worse. You know, uh, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't have any money for dates, he doesn't have any money for his web fluid, he, you know, he doesn't know how to wash his costume, he's always late for everything, he's never where he's supposed to be, everyone in his life thinks he's never in the moment because he's always just come from some harrowing thing, and it became this, it, and we see it so much now in our Harry Potter and, and so many other places in our culture that we're used to it. But at the time, it was a revolution of storytelling. No one had ever done this before. All right, Dan. Well, you know, when you want to talk about classic stories, let's start with Spider-Man chapter one. Oh, I couldn't even get through that sentence uh, with, a, with a straight face. Oh, I'm terrible. Um, so just just to give people a little bit of context here, you know, I I I I kind of push this topic on on Dan here. I don't know if it's unwillingly, but uh, <laughs> because I really um, as when I was doing research for the 100 Things Spider Man book, um, I was kind of fascinated in in rereading a lot of the Spider Man stuff again, just to see how how many people try to kind of recapture what Lee and Ditko did in an amazing fantasy 15 and kind of the varying degrees of, um, success that these people had in that. And, um, I kind of feel when you talk about the whole gamut of success or failure, when it comes to reimagining Spider-Man's origins, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have, uh, John Burns chapter one. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's Bendis and Mark Bagley's, ultimate spider-man uh you can kind of guess um based on prior conversations that dan and i have had about these comics uh which end of the spectrum is the good end of the band <laughs> but you know in terms of what chapter one was i mean you know I, I, not to pile on it but you know chapter one came on the heels of the end of the first volume of amazing spider-man so this is like the late 90s like 98 99 i believe after issue 441 which is still kind of the wackiest place to end a legacy series, if you ask me. <laughs> um, when, um, you know, Marvel decided to kind of streamline its books, uh, specifically its spider books, and they got they got rid of a lot of the B books, and they were just doing going to do Amazing Spider-Man and then Peter Parker Spider-Man uh, back at new number ones. But they didn't want to do like a... They didn't want like the main series to go back in time. I mean, they wanted it to pick up from where it left off, but to kind of have their cake and eat it too. Um, they brought in, um, John Byrne who would, you know, go on to do pencils with, uh, Howard Mackey on amazing Spider-Man during this time. But they had Byrne who kind of famously about a decade earlier 
um, redid Superman for DC. So he had a history of like taking these classic characters and reimagining their origins and, and put forward this uh, miniseries chapter one. And as a kind of a, a added bonus, if you will, you know, Marvel kind of promoted this series as no, no, this is the new canon. Uh, so Amazing Fantasy, anything that this changes from Amazing Fantasy 15, this, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, I guess it's a retcon or Amazing Fantasy 15 just never happened. I don't like, you know, that bit of it is always a little fuzzy to me, but it was very, they were very adamant that chapter one was going to be the new canon until, I don't think it flopped, but it didn't like really set the world on fire. And then as time went on, they kind of, you know, changed their story and were like, no, no, if anything, chapter one didn't happen. <laughs> and and, and, and this, the sales of this are like also um, affected by this is the period when Marvel was distributing their own content, you know, and so it, right. it, it just didn't have the numbers that, you know, like um, it, the other books were having because well, not the other books, all of Marvel's books were getting distributed the same way. But in terms of Marvel's history, they weren't pushing the numbers in the same way. So like this is the kind of thing where, you know, you could undo it and have minimal impact because really, even though it sold moderately well, it still wasn't really read by a huge number of people. Yeah, and and you know, I think the the, the biggest the biggest flaw that you know we're going to talk about probably in detail and 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 also kind of. Visa in comparison to Ultimate is that, you know, they they set out to do something new and to change things up. But when you look at it in finer detail, what they changed up was entirely superficial and was like arbitrary. And you, you, there's really no kind of logic to well, why are they doing this and why are they changing this detail? You know, like it, it, it comes across as being more insulting than anything else because you're like what's the point of this so like so i'm just supposed to accept that you know that for example the gift that peter and peter gets from ben and may that like you know like really cinches how special they are to them is a computer versus a microscope i mean what does that really mean in the grand scheme of things versus ultimate which really kind of uses the longer format to to tell a more intimate and emotionally charged story around the events of the origin um and like i said we'll we'll, we'll get into that in a little more detail but i mean dan i i know you you're kind of a chapter one newbie so you know what you read i don't know if you slogged through all 12 issues it's long it's a really long book because <laughs> i <laughs> Because I even like before it was out on Marvel Unlimited, I, the only place you really could find it was on um, trade paperback. And I, I bought the trade um, a few years ago just to have it. And I just remember that book was a slog to get through. Um, but did you have any initial impressions about it? Well, this this, uh, you know, whole thing happened when I had stopped reading Spider-Man, you know, amongst the clone saga and all of the kind of subsequent fallout that you kind of like Norman Osborn uh, like stuff and uh, the re the relaunch of the book. It's just an era that I checked out of Spider-Man. So I was not there for chapter one really. And 
had been told such negative things about it, I had never really invested in reading it. It was, although I will say, it was one of the first things that I read when I got Marvel Unlimited because I was like, finally, I can read this thing that everybody <laughs> kind of hates, you know, and that I've seen kind of everywhere. Like when you go to like dollar bins, you can find a lot of these, but more specifically, you can find the Doctor Octopus Chapter One series that also kind of came out for a while, and I have right, not really right. dived into. Um, so like, this was a good chance for me to kind of revisit it. And yeah, I read a bunch of issues of this, but it really gets, you're right. It is a long read and mainly because it's just a slog because it's so familiar, but also like not like, it's just not different enough to be exciting to read through. It's, it's, it's just boring (laughs) really is like the problem. Yeah, and, and and it really does mirror a lot of what volume two in the beginning was there, um, which is funny because, like, I kind of, like, there are such similarities in it, and apparently, like, there was, like, kind of this push in cha- in volume two of Amazing Spider-Man and, and Peter Parker to kind of reference um, chapter one um, frequently, I guess, to kind of really sell the fact, like, this was new canon. And yet, when I, like, I talked to Howard Mackey about that, he was like, even though Byrne did the art for him on 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 the volume two books, he had like no input on chapter one whatsoever. This was Byrne's baby start to finish. And, you know, Byrne, the only the only time Byrne has really ever talked about it is like on his like his message board where he, you know, controls the questions that come to him and how he's going to answer them. So in other words, you're not getting a lot of info out of him on this. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk. Like, ab- why did I change it to a, Why did I change it from a microscope to a computer? Cause I felt like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted um, to talk more broadly first, before we get into the details on chapter one about why yeah. we revisit this origin story so often, you know, like to me, it's, it's, it seems very intentional. It's like, um, it always comes at a time where Marvel wants to bring in new readers, right? But they're stuck with an older Spider-Man and they don't really know what to do. They can't reboot it. They can't return to high school. So the best thing that they can do is revisit the origin story. And it always, it's almost always a, uh, like a folly to do because the origin's so perfect in any complications you make to it can lessen this kind of perfect story you know and uh anyway i just find it interesting it's like that's the well they always go to to try to see if they can freshen up the character or provide a new entry point for readers right and and you know you could see in chapter one in the first issue that there are like attempts to like freshen it up and like add a little more contemporary like references in it. But like, you know, not again, not to be to dump on Byrne because Byrne, John Byrne has done amazing work in the comic book industry. I mean, the fact that he's basically universally known as a, as a crank is beside the point. Um, but, but like, you know, a lot of Byrne's best work came 10, 15, 20 years before this story. And I feel like, his age is just woefully showing throughout this and his attempt, like, you know, like having 
the the kids at Midtown High talk about we got to get to the Stones concert. I mean, again, this is 1999. The Stones are like the geriatric. They're still the geriatric act at that point. You know what I mean? Like, um, whereas, you know, Bendis with Ultimate, I mean, Bendis at that point is still a younger, newer writer into the world of comic books. So his attempt to kind of make things be more part of the the zeitgeist felt more natural and authentic whereas burn it's it's just forcing it you know like all these little references and allusions to try and take this story out of 1962 and put it in the modern day i mean it's it's again it's very superficial like i i don't know anything that it adds to the story and and you know again talking about revisiting the origin and the origin how the original is so perfect you know what Dan, what you and I always talk about when we talk about Amazing Fantasy 15 is just how how brilliantly succinct it is. And I feel like unless you're really going to evolve it in a meaningful way, um, there's no point in ever trying to go longer with it. Um, like, and again, with Bendis, which we'll talk about more detail, um, he he evolves the character significantly um, from what Lee and Dicko did. Whereas here with Byrne, like this first issue basically of chapter one tells the entirety of Amazing Fantasy 15 in like, was it like double or triple the pages? But there's no, you don't get to know these characters anymore. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just additional exposition. There's no, there's nothing different here right i mean did you get what i'm trying to say with that yeah i mean but i i think at the same time he was kind of handcuffed in a way that bendis wasn't you know like right his story was meant to be canon from the get-go so like he's stuck in a bad place where you know you can change things but if you change it too much people will really reject it so like i could see like how he was given an assignment that he couldn't possibly succeed on. But yeah, it, the padding, it, you can feel it reading the story. And there's some things that are kind of nice. Like I feel like we get to know Uncle Ben better in this book, maybe just a little bit than we did in Amazing Fantasy 15. But then, you know, the, the added wrinkle of that ends up undermining the ultimate payoff in the story. I guess to really talk about it, let's get into talking about what the big changes that are made are so that we can get into it because there's plenty of people that haven't read this you know uh this book well like first of all i mean we 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 we're introduced to the idea of richard and mary parker peter's parents early on i mean this was obviously something that you know in typical stanley fashion he probably didn't even think about until he had to think about (laughs) which is why they aren't really it's like he's an orphan what do you want me to tell you (laughs) (laughs) it's his parents i don't know the dead or something (laughs) (laughs) so there's that but also like kind of the story is is framed a little differently like more as like i guess kind of like a flat like peter looking back more as a flashback than like obviously it happening in real time. Like it kind of shows um, there's still this idea of like this is not happening now. It's ha- it happened in the past, right? I think that's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, and we never really find out where that flashback is occurring from. Like whether it's meant to be modern day Peter Parker or it's meant to be like him post discovering that the burglar you know, killed his uncle. I could never really get a good sense of it. 
it seems a little more modern than that, I guess. Like even like a volume two era Peter looking back on his origin. Right. You know, something one change that is I think a bit more significant is kind of the the timeline and the and the context of the accident um that that gave Peter his powers. I mean, it's it's not just some random experiment that he's going to he he's actually going to here um an experiment that's being conducted by Otto Octavius uh and thus they are both kind of born from the same lab explosion. Uh I do think this this lab explosion here that that leads to Peter getting his powers. I mean, it's pretty grim and brutal. Like unnecessarily really brutal. so. Like, yeah, like there's like mass casualties and like Peter and Otto seem to be the only survivors. <laughs> it's it, it like it's like super suspicious. It's like, huh, there was a kid in a lab explosion and he miraculously survived. But no one's going to like really bat an eye at that. It's never really brought up again once he's back. It's like, OK, like suddenly like this kid is like a major player like in the news, <laughs> you know, like wouldn't someone be keeping an eye on this kid post this and perhaps see him having weird powers of some sort? I, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's, it's really grim and it's drawn really grim. Uh, Peter is like bandaged from head to toe, like as if he got third degree burns all over his body. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, and not for nothing, like I feel like it also kind of misses the point of spider-man and what makes spider-man unique and 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 by that i mean like you know when you look at like the d the, the lee dicko stuff and and kind of where spider-man went from there there's almost like this unassuming quietness about how peter gets his i mean he's just a kid who gets bitten by a spider and and, and it's like because he's such a outcast and a loner anyway like it's almost like oh look at that loser he can't even go to a lab experiment without something stupid happening to him which is a then which is more or less word for word what gets brought up in ultimate later on <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. like it's like only me do i get bitten by a spider during going to a, to a class trip you know but like it's it's that idea of like again like part of what I feel has always been significant about Spider-Man is, is, you know, and what really seals the idea that he's this everyman character is just the total random innocuous nature of how he got his powers. And this is like this catastrophic lab explosion, which like you said, he's like the only survivor. It's like, there's nothing, there's nothing innocuous about that. You know, (laughs) there's nothing unassuming. (laughs) It's 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 pretty it's pretty blatant. And that it ties Otto in with his origin is like one of the few things that's repeatedly brought up in volume two more than anything else is that he has this more complicated relationship with Otto uh, than his other villains. Right. Which is not a bad change, in my opinion, because I feel like that's I mean, again, it took. Lee and Dicko a couple of issues to to figure all this stuff out but like I feel like once Otto was established you know in those issues there was that connection always you know like there was this pretty latent understanding that Otto was Peter gone bad that's not a bad change but again kind of I think putting it in the context of this like huge 
Bruckheimer style, Michael Bay style explosion. <laughs> uh, it just seemed a little unnecessary. And like you said, grim, like so grim, like, like man, like <laughs> all those innocent people that are dead because of this experiment. Like, my God, it's awful. <laughs> it also wades a little bit into like chosen one territory and the fate of Peter Parker kind of thing where right. um like there's something extra special about him like you said it's not just a random thing and that uh, that applies to other parts of this story as well like and I'm talking specifically about like the burglar because in this story you get the added wrinkle that the burglar saw you know the the Ben and 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 May Parker buying a computer and decided to case the joint and then ultimately he like discovers that Spider-Man lives in the house and the whole thing is him trying to team up with Spider-Man to rob this family um, in a way that pays off in a really awkward scenario where Spider-Man confronts him in the warehouse and the burglar is like, oh, hey, it's you. Like, we're supposed to be a team together. Um, yeah. To me, that's like almost an even bigger change is because it, it shifts it from Peter's neglig- negligence to stopping the burglar escape to and, and like his, his like passivity to him just being like a dumb guy that was a little too casual with leaving the window one night like that causes his uncle to die. It, it, it's a total flip. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I it's it, it it takes away personal nat- the the truly personal nature of of why Peter would bear this burden the way he has in other continuities. And and you know, also just to kind of go back to your point, this this is a change and this is part of the reason why I also for the record I'm not a fan of the the Marv Wolfman Amazing Spider-Man number two hundred. It's like, it's like it's like for Batman giving the the the, you know the the Jojo. mugger yeah giving him an identity. Like I I don't like again. It's, there's supposed to be a randomness to this whole thing, and it's like and it's the sheer fact that this random crime happened because Peter was negligent. It's you know like adding all this intent to both. Peter and then also the burglar and his motivations like it, it, it makes the story too. what's the word I'm looking for like it takes away that that naivete from it that makes the story so powerful you know like it's supposed to just be like holy crap this could have been anybody and it happened to all connect because of this one bad decision that Peter made you know like that's that's the point like it didn't you know, that burglar could have went on and killed anybody else. But the fact that it killed Uncle Ben is what made Peter realize he was wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and that that applies to the reading uh, of this as well. Like, as a reader, uh, this book goes through pains to spell everything out and really, like, make everything fit like a puzzle. And if you're a, a smart reader, you read this and you can immediately tell what's going to happen. It it removes the entire element of surprise from this book. And Amazing Fantasy is a very surprising book, you know, like because of the randomness of it all. And this, it just seems like fated to happen. And in a way that, yeah, again, uh, not to beat the point, but just removes any of the specialness of it. Yeah. Like, I mean, 
in the in the way that we kind of pretend that chapter one didn't happen. I mean, I also try to pretend that Amazing Spider-Man 200 didn't happen. But, <laughs> like, do we really think that? Like, I'm searching for treasure in the old broads house. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, well, as much as we don't want to pretend that chapter one happened, uh, Byrne was even offered to do a chapter two and continue this. So yeah. like, it was successful to a point. Yeah, and again, it, it, it's John Byrne, and and you had to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. And and I mean, did you ever read what he did with Superman in the eighties, Dan? Uh, no, I haven't. I mean, it's great. It's it's like some of the best comics ever. I mean, it's it's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And it's it's kind of like, you know, the accepted origin story of Superman now for the most part. Um, but you know, like he just has such a firmer grasp of of who these characters are like there's not a there's not a lot of what burn has ever done on spider-man from a writing standpoint that i could say i'm a fan of i mean like his art's great even in this book the book is pretty this whole book looks great right i guess but it's it's being put up against steve dicko so it's like hard to really say you know like right the whole thing is like um, a lot of direct references to dicko so like he's always going to come up short in in that regard. No, that's fair and I get it. But I just mean like oh I mean Byrne is clearly an accomplished artist and you know there are other books that he's written where he's accomplished but I can't think of anything he's ever written on Spider-Man that I've been like oh yeah, you know, Byrne just gets Spider-Man. I don't I I I don't think he gets the ca- I think Byrne is too old for Spider-Man. Like I I hate to be that way. I'm not saying that you have to be a certain age to be able to write him but you do have to have a certain sensibility i think and i don't think burn has it yeah and i i wonder also if there's something to do with you know like the the origins of superman were were sketched out in a far like uh less detailed manner than even the 11 pages we got in amazing fantasy 15 uh right you know it's like a couple pages to get superman's origin you know, I I wonder if there was just more wiggle room there, and he just felt really boxed in by this like perfectly crafted story in the pages of Spider Man. You know, I mean, obviously he felt like he could change stuff, but you know, I, I could see someone writing this and being like, "Oh, I could see these changes being good." You know, like there's a good idea and a good intention behind all of them, um, but it it is it the project itself is like fundamentally flawed. It's like take Dicko, don't change it very much, you know, but update it. And it's like, I don't think you could ever be successful in that regard. Right. And, you know, to transition to that, to what Brian Michael Bendis ended up doing a couple of years later on Ultimate, I mean, it's funny, you know, so Bendis, you know, famously kind of gets this, um, this directive from um, Bill Jemis, the, the publisher of Marvel at the time, to, to reinvent spider-man for a younger audience um not even a year after chapter one yeah well after the end of chapter one i'd say yeah because i mean i think the yeah because it was like 2001 2002 right that ultimates came out around yeah and i think chapter one ended in like 2000 at some point but 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 yeah pretty quickly (laughs) it's it's like this failed we're moving on to the next thing Right. But I mean, like, you know, Bendis had the leg up in that. I mean, he knew that this was going to be like a new continuity. Um, But, you know, 
he was still charged with, you have to redo the origin. And, you know, Bendis was like, apparently like, like he, apparently Bendis was not Marvel's first choice, or I don't know if it wasn't their first choice, but others had attempted it. And Bendis, like before he did a single page that wanted to see what others had done. And Bendis was like, the first thing he picked up on was that everyone basically did what Byrne did, which was that they were too afraid to change. Like they're like, I can't touch this story. And and Bendis Bendis was the only one who was like, no, no, I want to do this differently. Like he's not even going to by the end of the first issue, he's just going to be on the ceiling for the first time. You know, like and, and that's, you know. From there, that's what really kind of think, you know, was the catalyst for Ultimate being so dramatically different. And I feel such a better executed reimagining of the story. Now, Dan, Ultimate, you were reading this thing in real time. So what did you think when you first saw Ultimate? I mean, it was one of the best comic reading experiences I've ever had. I mean, I had seen it advertised for a while before it actually came out. Uh, I remember my father clipped me you know, like a a news article about it uh, with that very strange Joe Quesada cover uh, of the first issue with that weird blurring of Spider-Man in a twisted, distorted perspective and and the Times Square real-life photo. It's it's just a... That was all we had to go off of, you know, but it was advertised as this kind of modern, um, you know, retelling of... Spider-Man, and I don't know if maybe the issue had been done for a while and it was like a month or two beforehand, but like that, these big news articles were writing it up. I think this was in like Time Magazine or something, this whole page article about it. They must have known that they had something special on their hands because I definitely regarded it as something special at the time, and I, I can't really remember why other than the fact that it was being written up in this big, you know, national newsletter of some sort um and i remember you know they they did this giveaway of the issue uh you know it was at like kb toys and all this stuff you could walk through the mall and they just had stacks of this thing so for a while my like only copy of uh the first issue of ultimate spider-man was the freebie version of it um Mm. but they were really trying to get people into this thing and again, I suspect because they knew they had something really good going on. And it was really exciting. I mean, I was, uh, you know, like 14 at the time, I think. And, you know, you're reading this book about like this 14-year-old Peter Parker. It was the perfect time for it to hit me. And I felt like I knew this character immediately, you know, and could recognize in him Something almost even more powerful than something I'd gotten out of all, you know, 400 plus issues of Amazing Spider-Man that I had read at the time. It just, I'd never read a comic that was paced like this before. Yeah. And I mean, just some other little context notes. So uh, apparently Bendis, when he started this project, thought he was only going to do it for, it was only going to be a miniseries, that it was just six issues and done. Um you know, ha ha, uh, 200, 200 something issues later. Um, also I always just love this because like 
you know, I keep saying Bendis, 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 but you know, where would this book be without Mark Bagley? And Bagley like had to be dragged kicking and screaming into this project. Like he didn't want, he didn't want to do it. And he said that to us on our show, right? When we interviewed him back in the day. Yeah. I mean, that's like not a, not a secret. Um, and Bendis talks about it whenever he gets interviewed too. I mean, like Bagley wanted nothing that he was like, I did Spider-Man in the nineties. I can't do this again. I can't, I can't go back. Um, and like, even apparently like he gave in like his, his pages for his fourth issue and was like, I'm done now. And, and apparently like somebody in the front office of Marvel was like, you are walking away from the project of a lifetime. You realize that, right? You are going to be the biggest idiot in comics if you walk away from this. And then that kind of snapped Bagley into shape. And, you know, he ended up doing over 100 issues with Bendis. But um, just amazing when you think about it, because it's like this this book could have had all these issues and hang ups to it. And yet it's still just so wonderfully done. And, and you know, Dan, I, I, I'm not afraid to admit that you pushed the idea of ultimate on me. I always kind of saw it as like, ah, you know, it's just a, it's just a, it's Spider-Man for, for kids kind of a thing or for the younger crowd. Um, you know, this, this came out when I was in college and wasn't, was kind of in between like my reading period. So like I had to go back and rediscover this and, you know, the first time I read it in full was a few years ago and I loved it. And then just for this episode, I reread these issues and was like, Oh God, it's just, it gets, it just gets it so right. Like, I mean, this is, if this was my introduction to the origin, I would prefer this even to Lee and Dicko, which is crazy. I know, but it's just, I love what they do with this universe. Well, it has 40 years of hindsight to, to build on, you know, and, and, and it feels like, it took notes on every year of Spider-Man's existence, you know, whereas like chapter one just feels like a guy reread maybe Lee and Dicko and was like, you know, there's a couple things we could solve by building it into this issue. Like Bendis's approach feels like here's a guy that has read every issue of Spider-Man a million times, really gets how he works and wants to solve every problem with the character just straight away, you know, in in a really elegant, non-obtrusive fashion. And then couple him with, like, this hotshot artist. I honestly think Bagley would probably not have the career that he has now if he didn't hang around on this book. It's what allowed him to kind of, you know, continue where some artists, like uh, we just talked to Ron Friends, you know, like, are you know, I get called in by Marvel every now and again, but Bagley is sustaining this career, I think, because he landed something like Ultimate Spider-Man. And, yeah, I mean, what a what a pairing. Um, d- uh, to me, this book defines Bendis' career, too. Like, this style of writing was allowed to flourish in this kind of side title, you know, where he could kind of operate on his own. And he really allowed him to kind of reinforce that this is I am Bendis and this is how I do things. Yeah, but like I, I, I agree with you. But at the same token, like it, it, it still feels reined in because, like you know, like I, I, I feel like Bendis has gotten too Bendisized in recent years. You know oh, absolutely. I mean? like, absolutely. Yeah. Like there's like to me, this still doesn't like there's no 
even you know specifically in these six issues nothing nothing feels wasted here like every every panel is pushing something it's developing a character it's developing a subplot it's solving a problem like you said it's it's you know like how do we how do we solve these issues that that Lee and Dicko didn't have the hindsight to solve you know it's it's establishing relationships i mean it's it's making you really feel for Ben in May. So when the inevitable happens, like, I mean, like it, you know, Ben's murder and the fact that like it doesn't happen in the first issue, it happens in issue, what, four yeah. that that it, it like it's a gut punch, Dan, you know, like, you know, <laughs> this is going to happen, but it still just sucks the wind out of you because it's like so devastating because this guy has been built up and like, you know, this you have Peter really struggling to to kind of come to grips with who he now is now that he has these powers and he's lashing out at ben he's lashing out at may which is something i feel that like certainly like the raimi movie kind of gets well um in terms of like that that you know that awkward teenagerness mm -hmm. to it all so and you see ben just trying so hard to understand peter and you know like to to to, to get him to kind of recenter himself and then to have him get killed, you're just like, ah, oh, God, couldn't you just redone it? <laughs> couldn't Uncle Ben live? <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking to those kind of characters, like I, I would be hard pressed to give you a, 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 a different answer for this question. But I can't think of another comic that starts off with such as clearly defined characters and character voices than this book. I can't think of it in the pages of super superhero comics that I've ever read a, a cast of characters as assured and as clearly presented uh, in terms of who they are and how they operate th than this title. I, it just it just gets every single cast member. Yeah, I mean all the way down to the bullies and the the kids that Peter went to school with, like even they, they don't feel superfluous in this. They're not extras in this story. They're all important and and they all have value. Yeah, like Kenny Kong. Here's a new yeah. character. Immediately you're interested in this guy. Yeah. And he's and he's not a a stereotype, you know, like he's this big kind of bully jock, but then you know, he's willing to let Peter crash on his couch, you know, <laughs> like um, it, it's just amazing. And like I like kind of the weaseliness of Flash in this, you know, like it's it's, you know, he's the he, he's he's the dumb bully Flash from from Dick Lee, But then like, you know, when he when he gets his hand broken in the fight with Peter, you know, like he kind of like reverses this little weasel and gets called out for it by his by his friends, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. Oh, what are you going to sue him to or something like that? I mean, it's just. Well, it's it's where you start to see the kind of like progressive contemporary version of high schoolers kind of seeping in at the edges. You know, I always think about 21 Jump Street when the main characters of that movie return to high school and the bullies are like the smart kids. They're like the yeah. cool kids. <laughs> and that's like starting to happen in this book. You can see. And I, I'm. Do, do you feel like this book is aged? at all like i mean it definitely doesn't feel i think to like it would be a little more millennially if it was released today it definitely feels like a product of the early 2000s to me but not so much 
No, and and I mean it. To me, it still feels contemporary without it the way that contemporary was forced into chapter one. Again, like I keep not to keep beating up on the greatest rock and roll band of all time, quote unquote. But like, you know, the stone like 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 burn throwing the stones in there to me just felt like this really weird dated reference or, or just the fact again, like, oh, it's a computer, a computer, a computer. So, you know, we, we all do computers now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's nothing like that in 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 ultimate that will i feel like truly date it i mean you know maybe some stuff when he gets to the bugle but like that's more funny to me like like with the website <laughs> yeah absolutely so let's talk about uh what burn tried to do and bendis does again which is tie the villains into spider-man's origin moment um it's not the exact moment in this i mean the spider is obviously an osborne construct and a really interesting choice to open this series with Osborne uh like and the spider um kind of signaling that things are going to be absolutely different this time around um but you get this interesting moment where Osborne turns himself into the goblin and Otto is there and and everything kind of springs forth from this moment um it's funny that Bendis saw this as a mini series because it's like perfectly positioned to be like here are like 50 additional issues that it could happen right out of the gate from this moment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, but I, I mean, I, I, I and like, like I said with Otto and, 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 and burn, I mean, like I, I like linking this together. There's still a randomness to it because it's not like Peter was the chosen one to get the spider, you know, like it's, right. it's, it's, it's it's still a very bizarre accident, you know, and it's an accident that came from the villain's hubris and arrogance, you know, like he like what throws this genetically modified spider at his, at his, um, assistant who's like, I don't know what to do with it. He like throws it in the glass without covering it basically. Yeah. Uh, which, which, which leads this whole thing. And, and as I alluded to earlier, you know, when Peter gets bitten, you know, well, first of all, he gets like mercilessly bullied for it, like for spazzing out. But like, you know, he even says like, you know, why me? You know, why do I get bitten? You know, like, why can't I just go on a class trip and have nothing happen? You know, <laughs> like it's just um, it accentuates the randomness of it. But because of all the machinations behind that, the, the spider itself, like it, it then, like you said, kind of creates this linked world and, and, and it just opens up the possibilities for, for new stories, you know, like, like it, it feels like it's, it's more organic. Like there's just a tons of different stories that can now be told out of this because they link this together this way. So obviously this was a huge success and ultimate is still in some way going on today. Uh, I guess, I guess, Attesting to if you do reboot Spider-Man really well, it can be a fabulous success for you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think setting a different continuity makes a lot of the difference. I'm not, you know, that's clear because, you know, we, we can touch upon a couple of stories that are still set in the true continuity that try and change things. And you're kind of like, eh, but but the same token, like it, it's just. Bendis wasn't afraid to take chances and to, but, but still stay true to the source material. Cause there's nothing, that's the thing at the end of the day, this is not change for the sake of change. And, and, and I feel like that is a lot of what chapter one is that ultimate isn't is change for the sake of change. 
Um, you know, we, we need to we need to update it. We need to make these modifications to to justify our existence in doing this project. Whereas Ultimate, it was like, no, no, I'm just going to I'm just going to retell Spider-Man my own way. And it works because of that. Yeah, and it, it felt like uh, something that had an actual like vision to it. This was a, like just sprung forth from someone's mind. This way to do it, and it's you know as a contained thing, you know. Whereas chapter one feels just like, well, I've always wanted to do like little changes, but you know, it it wasn't a whole like well conceived product. Um, in of itself. I mean, Ultimate was so successful that it was outselling Amazing for a while, which is yeah. crazy to think about. We'll ever see if we're in a day like that again, where the B-book, if you even consider this a B-book, outsells ASM, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, we, we joked that maybe there would be a possibility for Renew Your Vows, and that seemed very quickly to kind of dissolve. The, yeah. the, the desire for the Mary Jane wedding is not quite as strong as i think uh some people said, express on the internet i would say you mean the online petitions aren't aren't moving the needle man <laughs> the online positions do not translate into comic book sales apparently you want to just touch on a couple of other little origin remixes that we've gotten over the years i mean you know we don't have to go into great detail i mean obviously there's from non-comic book cinematically we got two origins in both sam raimi's spider-man and then mark webb's the amazing spider-man i felt like raimi's was more truer to bendis than what webb did but what did you think yeah i agree i don't love everything about raimi's origin i don't love that we got this like red and blue genetically modified spider but i understand the desire to kind of like make it contemporary that like radioactivity was not the thing uh in the like er early 2000s it was more about genetic modifications i just feel like the whole spider bite stuff is really goofy in the raimi movie but Mm. it's no better in the amazing spider-man series uh either like that that whole scenario is goofy and then the you know the Andrew Garfield series really drops the ball on Uncle Ben's death. Yeah, I mean I would say like with Mark Mark Webb is kind of more akin to to Burn where it was like you know we've already saw one cinematic origin story and it was like well we got to be different so how do we make it different? Well, we'll do some very superficial changes and then we'll really talk a lot about his parents. <laughs> Which <laughs> You know, creates its own mess of things. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I feel like the Uncle Ben stuff in the Raimi series is really potent. Enough that they revisit it a number of times. Uh, let's not even get into Sandman. Um, and his <laughs> in the whole I did night. it for my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've always, you know, Ron Friends pointed it out and, and I've repeated it on the show. Is that like Raimi does a great job of getting us into Peter's headspace. To the point that we cheer him on when he lets the burglar go. And to me, that's like brilliant and, and deserves all the kudos in the world, uh, you know, in, in the Raimi version. Yeah, although I'll say something that both movies did that I never truly enjoyed when it came to Peter and the burglar was I feel like they both treated his reaction more out of spite. Whereas I like the idea like what Dicko did and, and what Bendis did, which was more like just 
ambivalence and well i can't be bothered you know what i mean like yeah like you know whereas it felt like i probably even more so in the web version but certainly in Raimi too like you know peter you know on a better day would have stopped them but was like no f you i'm not doing this you know what i mean like you screwed me out of money or you know you you didn't like my chocolate. What was the, in the web movie? Something with the chocolate milk, right? Or uh, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I couldn't even tell you the, 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 not to get too much into it, but the blocking of that scene is really odd. Like he's not actually in Peter Parker's way. So like for Peter to get involved would be like very strange. Right. Uh, yeah. And then like uncle Ben's just like waiting outside and gets killed. It's like ridiculously bad. Yes, but obviously there's some other comics that have either just redone the origin, like like the Marvel H Spider-Man series from 04 and 05, and um, the Marvel Adventures Spider-Man. Is Spidey considered an origin? I mean, did we get an origin in Spidey? No, I don't think we did, but it was advertised like Chapter 1, where it was like, this is a in-canon thing, and then very quickly turned out to not be. And I think the reason we don't talk about any of these things, I mean, I guess Marvel Adventure Spider-Man ran for seven years, but like we don't talk about these because they just weren't that popular. Like yeah. the Ultimate Spider-Man series was, you know, like Marvel Adventures is like they sell it to kids, you know, who are watching the TV show or whatever, you know, that need a, a comic to pick up that's not amazing, you know. But nobody who's really reading comics is really talking about these series with any kind of seriousness. Uh, like, I read the Marvel Adventure Spider-Man in prep for this uh, ep- episode. And it is literally Steve Ditko's and Stan Lee's Amazing Fantasy told again in 20 pages in a less artful way. It's like not, it's not even as, as uh, bold as Chapter 1 to try to change a few arbitrary things. It's like, we're just going to redo this. Like yeah. beat for beat. It's exhausting. Yeah. And then, I mean, we've certainly got plenty of books and series, too, that kind of like not necessarily retold the origin, but like played in the era of the origin and the and the first few issues of Lee Ditko and kind of expanded on the continuity. Like, I mean, Untold Tales of Spider-Man, which I love, actually. I mean, like, that's a good book. But, like, they, th- I mean, that's not a retelling. I mean, that's just, like, these are these are adventures that, as the title says, we were never, un- you know, have just been unearthed, so to speak, you know? But, like, you know, and it fills in some gaps and kind of the way Bendis does solves some, uses the power of hindsight to solve some storytelling problems and, and how these characters are all linked. But um, it's not, you know, it's not a it's it's not a retelling or an adaptation in any sense. And then like same with um, what we got a few years ago from Dan Slott, um, the Learning to Crawl series. I mean, I wouldn't consider that a retelling. I mean, it's it's just new adventures in between those first three issues of Spider-Man. Right. Yeah. That one's like even more so directly filling in the gaps like it. It like starts the minute that fantasy ends with him walking down the street, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty direct. Um, have you read Spider-Man with great power? No, I haven't. That that's from uh, what? Like the two thousands, right? Yeah. From a few years back. It's kind of interesting. It's about Spider-Man's kind of, um, wrestling career and like 
going on the fame circuit uh, before he has the responsibility. So it's like him at his peak ego. And it's got some interesting stuff where he gets like mixing it up with the mob and all this stuff. It's interesting to check out. I don't love it, but um, it's it's a book that I think tends to kind of get forgotten. And maybe rightfully so, but it's an interesting one nevertheless. Yeah. And same with uh, Amazing Origins, right? Wasn't that one? Um... It's basically just a retelling of all of his early tales with a little more like contemporary detail. And it was, uh, 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 you know, kind of advertised as like this kind of like Batman year one kind of thing where it's like yeah. we're going to modern retell. And then everybody's just like, wow, the origin's better with Dicko and Lee anyway, you know. They do these things every now and again that are just kind of lame. So yeah, any anything else origin wise you want to hit on before we go to our outro, Dan? I mean, we've talked a little bit about like the burglar looking for treasure and how that's kind of best left forgotten. And I also wanted to kind of bring it up, you know, like these aren't retellings, but they, you know, are people kind of mining the origin story for new wrinkles and things to do. And I think you can take or leave most of them. Like Silk, you know, the second person that got bit by the spider. Are we going to be talking about Silk in 10 years? Only if Marvel wants us to, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it is interesting to me, you know, you say, are we going to be talking about Silk in 10 years? I mean, like some of these other things, like there's also, you know, like the, the J. Michael Straczynski totem power stuff. And, of course, the burglar searching for treasure thing. A lot of these that mind those origin stories, they, they get, they get brushed aside after time. I mean, like, and, and I liked a lot of the JMS stuff. I didn't think it, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't offended by it, but like, it's like, it's dangerous terrain. And I think like, you know, a lot of it does not stand the test of time. Oh, I think JMS was smart to kind of be like, it's, you can, you can choose to believe this or not, you know, where, where silk is like, there was literally another person that was bitten by the radioactive spider. And, like, to me, like, fine, Silk can exist. I don't need that to be her origin. Like, I find that kind of apocryphal. Like, that, like, there was another person that got bitten by a spider. Like, come on. Like, how much dumber can you get in terms of, like, creating a new character? But, um,. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm with you. Most of these things I could leave by the wayside. But there's always there's always the buried treasure in Aunt May's basement, which you know, <laughs> it's gonna come back, man. We're gonna go back to that one of these days. God help uh, us all. Yeah. So uh, with that said, thanks for joining us for our tenth episode of our first season of the all new Amazing Spider Talk, Dan. Our next episode will be out in two weeks on November 29th. That's post Thanksgiving. Uh, what is the title for our next show? Yeah, it's gonna be called unmasking the goblin mystery we're going to be talking about the reveal of the green goblin and what that mystery meant both for the creators of spider-man and the mythology itself we've kind of dipped our toes into this a little bit a few episodes back but we're going to really talk about the green goblin who is left out of our villains episode uh or the bad guys if you will mark the bad guys uh so (laughs) We're going to talk all about the Green Goblin in his own episode. Yeah, and also just kind of like what the impact of how that storyline unfolded and what it meant for Spider-Man comics going forward, which is, you know, to the to our mission statement of Spider-Man comics and a bit of a bigger picture. Right, Dan? Absolutely. 
also for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page for our podcast feed for this week's bonus episode. Uh, last time around, Dan and I spoke with Ron Friends. Uh, this time we're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man number 790 as Spidey battles the Human Torch again over the Baxter building. Uh, and then, uh, Dan, as a double bonus, we'll be talking Spectacular Spider-Man number six uh, and a pretty big reveal at the end of that issue that's I've been 50 years in the making with maybe one in the middle, a cup, one little episode in the middle that then got retconned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's new, but not new. Um, <laughs> so uh, just remember, for $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to all of these exclusive Patreon episodes, new issue reviews, sworn Formby books, mailbags, Ron friends chatting about stuff, whatever it is, you will get it. Uh, and then for $10 more, uh, $10 or more, excuse me, a month, you'll be sent exclusive commissioned artwork in the mail every six months. What's better than that? Dan, where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk and any writing that I do about Spider-Man over on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Oh, and I will say for our Patreon subscribers who are doing the $10 a month and the artwork, the artwork has been sent off to Ron, and uh, we should be seeing some results relatively soon. So get excited about that. Mark, how about you on the internet this week? Uh, of course, you can find me at Chasing ASM Blog on Twitter. Uh, thanks again to all of you who were following me as I ran the New York City Marathon uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I saw some likes and retweets and replies to my Twitter feed as I synced up my marathon app to it. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I got to, everyone got to see me get progressively slower in real time as I hit like mile 20. So good for that. Did anybody uh, show up on the sidelines boasting about annuals? I did not see it, but it, it's pretty crowded in, at the New York City Marathon, Dan. So if they did, if you did and I didn't see you, I apologize. I, um, you know, would have stopped if I saw you and wasn't on the verge of dying um <laughs> and of course uh be sure as always to uh order my order my book 100 things spider-man fans should know and do before they die and i i recently just got uh, another inquiry yes if you want um a signed book plate uh just reach out to me on twitter or facebook and i will work on getting you something Awesome, Mark. Well, uh, let's close this out with our favorite remembrance from Amazing Fantasy 15 that we have, in fact, remixed ourselves. And what might that be, Mark? Yes, our remixed version is with great podcasts must also come the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Thank you.